You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome to the Dean's Class this morning. Uh, Just by way of announcement, uh, many of you who tuned in to our broadcast uh, will see that all of a sudden half of the people disappeared. Uh, That's because we received a threat Uh, not necessarily the advent, uh, but that there may uh, be uh, some more rioting this afternoon in downtown Birmingham. Uh, By the time uh, you watch this, we will have realized whether or not that is true or not, Uh, but in the interest of safety, we uh, had folks go ahead and and go home. Um, I also want to issue some disclaimers on this class. One is uh, what we're going to try to do. Well, let me just say what we're going to try to do first. That is, we have Mark Ginolette with us, uh, Old Testament professor of divinity at Samford University's Beeson Divinity School, and we are going to talk about concepts of justice and mercy and hope uh, through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, that's our hope, to just at least establish some foundational principles that may help us in the conversations that we have moving ahead of us. Now the disclaimers. One, uh, I realize we're two white men talking about this, and uh, we need to tread uh, lightly. And so we're really not necessarily looking to go into any deep conversation uh, about the things that have been going on over the past two weeks in our nation, Uh, but we do want to get a biblical perspective on how we might be able to talk about these issues. And secondly, uh, no offense to Mark, but he's only here because I had a hard time getting uh, an (laughs) African-American pastor uh, to be able to be with me this week. Obviously, the community is hurting, and they have pastoral responsibilities Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, we're going to persist, and uh, hopefully uh, God will bless this class in spite of ourselves. So let's have a word of prayer. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, know that this is your world and that you have made uh, uh, one blood uh, of all the races. So, Lord, we do pray that we would help live into that reality of um, who our neighbor is, and that, Lord, you would help us understand what it really means for justice uh, to be served and what it looks like for mercy uh, to saturate uh, our community, and above all, what it means to hope in you. And so, Lord, speak to us even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Mark, I'm really glad uh, that you're here. Um, your, uh, your field of expertise, uh, well, you have a lot of fields of expertise, but in particular, you, um, you have taught here as well as at Beeson about uh, especially the minor prophets where some of these themes that I've already mentioned come up. So talk to us a little bit about uh, the people of Israel who uh, not only experienced depression in biblical times, yeah. um, but also even into the 20th century. Yeah. But uh, talk about some of, the, um, some of what the prophets and what the Bible tells us when there was active oppression in the life of Israel. Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for inviting me today, <laughs> and I'm glad to be the, the substitute for what, the conversation that I know that you're really hoping to have. Um, you know, the Old Testament's whole narrative, if you think about how um, it begins with creation and then moves into the fall and then begins to unfold in the, in the, in the establishment of Israel as God's covenanted people, is a story about Israel as an oppressed people that eventually gets liberated by the, by, by the gracious, redemptive hand of God himself. 
So that, that paradigmatic redemptive moment of the Exodus establishes, I think, something of, of the arc of the whole Old Testament's view of how Israel is to relate both um, vertically to God in gratitude. We, we've actually been talking a little bit about this in the Gentle at Home. Um, there, there's a very strong sense from a sort of larger biblical theological perspective that um, the opposite of gratitude in the Bible is idolatry. Um, to enter into idolatry is to enter into a spirit of ingratitude, recognizing that the source of all good things and goodness itself is not God, our liberator, but something else. So that itself is kind of an action of gratitude. So God's liberating um, activity of the Exodus establishes the vertical relationship that we have and also the horizontal relationship that we have with our neighbors because that grace that we have received in God's own reconciling and redemption of us is meant to be extended to our neighbor as well. And of course, that, that makes itself known in the two tables of the law. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and those two are, are related the one to the other. So when you enter into the complexity of Israel's history, um, and, and it is complex. Who writes a history like Samuel and Kings? Right. Um, I mean, it's a history of Israel's covenanted <coughs> failure. Um, I, I've been spending way more time than I should be working on a chapter on, on First Kings for a project that I'm doing now. And um, I've been spending time in the, in the narrative of Solomon there in First Kings. And so here you have um, First Kings chapter 3 um, that begins with this sort of beautiful scene where, where, where Solomon... Um, ask God for discernment. It's like an Aladdin scene. What do, what do you want, Solomon? Do you have anything you want? And Solomon says, I want discernment, and this is crucial, so that I can act in a just way for my people as I adjudicate the various problems that come my way. And of course, the exhibit A of that are the two prostitutes that come with the baby, and one claims that it's theirs. And, and, and Solomon demonstrates his ability to execute justice before the whole nation, and they marvel at it. And then very next few verses say, and, and Solomon followed in the ways of the Lord his God, and he did what was right in his eyes. So Solomon loved the Lord. That's First Kings 3. First Kings 11, verse 1. I mean, just think about the juxtaposition of this. And Solomon loved many foreign women. Right? So you have First Kings 3, he loved the Lord with all of his heart. By the end of Solomon's reign, First Kings 11, he loved many foreign women. They turned his heart to other gods. And, and the Bible says in First Kings 11, and God was angry with Solomon. Um, so you see actually in Solomon's own life, the arc of his own, his own, uh, his own reign, um, the whole of Israel's history in kind of a nutshell. Um, beginning with, um, they love the Lord their God with all their heart, to by the end of it, here we have the whole dissolution and breakdown of both the vertical um, and the horizontal when it comes to loving God um, as, as they were called to be and to do. So all, all to say, the prophets speak into that dynamic, and it's a dynamic that you see present within the whole history of Israel, this real struggle with what does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love our neighbor in light of the fact that God's made a claim on us. We're his, we're not our own. And I think any conversation we have about some of these issues at play and how they sort of move into our current moment, which is a challenge, a real challenge, um, is to do so in a sort of spirit of humility that begins with the first and basic claim, I am not my own. I'm God's. He, he's the redeemer. He has called me. I'm his. And that's the way in which my own self-understanding is going to have to shape and, and, and frame the way in which I view and understand my neighbor, especially when my neighbor looks different than me, the other. So I think that the, these dynamics of the love of God and the justice for the neighbor 
These are dynamics that permeate the Old Testament. And of course, we'll talk more about the prophets, but the prophets lean hard into that uh, particular dynamic. Yeah. So, uh, so there, there's an order there, it seems, of loving God and thereby being enabled to love your neighbor. Hmm. And even though um, the Bible would be wholly unfamiliar with our modern notions of multiculturalism, right. there's, because, well, the cultures were pretty monolithic. Uh, I mean, it, it right. you know, it, it, there wasn't a lot of immigration, you know, there wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go work for Google in Israel, and then you get transferred right. to Google right. in right. Barcelona or something right. like that. Um, and yet the Bible does speak to how outsiders or people different from the dominant culture are to be treated, certainly in the Old Testament. And even Jesus, um, you know, being with the Syrophoenician woman or his parable of the Good Samaritan. And so, how, how is a culture or a people or a kingdom that has experienced oppression and may even be experiencing oppression, what is their call on treating a minority culture within yeah. their area. Yeah, well, again, it's another issue, and I like the way that you framed it, that, that really makes its way like a red thread throughout the whole of the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. So this is a biblical theological concern. Um, when we speak about terms of justice, which we haven't really even defined, but we might think of justice as the execution of God's righteous law equitably in um, the public sphere. So I, I think I can't remember the author, but I, I read a book somewhere. It said justice is God's grace gone public, um, sort of moving into the public square. Um, and you see that in the Old Testament often described not necessarily in merely abstract terms, but in very concrete terms. Who, who are the people that are most vulnerable that are in need of protection? It's a widow especially in a patriarchal world like they lived in in the ancient world, where to not have a husband or a son is to be absolutely vulnerable um, to, to the system at large. And this is why Naomi's plight in the book of Ruth is so problematic. So you have the widow, you have the orphan for similar reasons to the widow, um, and you have the alien sojourner in the land, those who come in who are not a part of the set fabric of the society itself um, God has built laws that are, that are directly related to those people to protect them and to make sure that they have um, the, the God's grace and justice extended to them as well in, in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable, actually, when you think about the ways in which the Old Testament has that very generous, thinking about this in terms of like um, liberality and the, t- and the sense of freedom and, and concern for the other, um, the Old Testament is very generous in its concern for the other and the marginalized, um, remarkably so. In a world, by the way, that wasn't ordered necessarily right. that way. So this is, this is an interesting indication about the way, again, in which Israel's election, um, her, her status before the Lord has an impact on the way in which one deals with the neighbor. Um, I, yeah, Boaz, again, Ruth and Naomi, Boaz, that, that is a fun story. Um, I, I tease my my students at Beeson, that Ruth 3 um, maybe intimates that it's going to be a steamy HBO miniseries, but it ends up being a, a, a Hallmark film, you right. know, <laughs> so, kind of the, um, so you know, she goes to the threshing floor, and, 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 and Boaz acts honorably with her, but the way in which Boaz acts honorably is he respects her dignity, 
when he respects her otherness. She's a Moabite woman, and throughout the whole of the book of Ruth is called a Moabite woman. She's a foreigner, and he protects her. I mean, this was a fascinating, there's little lines in the book of Ruth that are easy to overlook, but, but there's, there's this underlying understanding in Ruth that to be a single woman, especially a young woman, working the fields of ancient Israel is to invite some kind of physical aggression. Mm-hmm. Because what does Boaz say? Don't touch her. Um, and then Naomi says, make sure you go to that field again so that you're not attacked. Um, so she was vulnerable. And what does Boaz do? Boaz protects her. He cares for her. He's concerned about her vulnerability. And he respects her dignity by allowing her to work in the field and do her own kind of, um, uh, her own kind of labor um, there, there in the fields. So you see that. And I think that's why Boaz in the book of Ruth is referred to as an honorable, virtuous man is a virtuous man because of that, these particular dynamics. So, I mean, I, I, I went further than I think you wanted me to go, but um, that theme about care and concern for the other is central through. And think about the genealogy of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Here you have Ruth, the Moabitess woman who's now been brought, and she's, she's not a local, she's not one of our own, she's not even a part of the covenanted people of God, and now she's actually in the sort of messianic lineage itself that leads to the coming of Jesus into the mm-hmm. world. That's an indication of the character of God to care for people and for the world at large at the same time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think that, um, that at least I struggle with and I think that the world struggles with is, is having the eyes of somebody like Boaz to yeah. be able to actually, yeah. n- one, identify this is somebody who's vulnerable and needs to be cared for um, it's hard not to come across as patronizing. Yes. That, that's, that's kind of another issue. It's a big um, issue. But yeah. clearly it was an issue in Jesus' day when people were like, well, who's my neighbor? Right. And then he tells the story right. uh, of, of the Good Samaritan. So, you know, it, it's really hard right now to be able to, to have the right eyes because I think that people will want to see through eyes of mercy, but it seems to be our propensity is to see them through eyes of justice. And what does it mean, you used a phrase there, what does it mean to, for God's justice to be administered equitably? Because that kind of frightens me a little bit. Because I you know, my grandfather used to say, Lord, let there be justice, but if there be injustice, <laughs> yeah. just let it be on my behalf. Yeah. Um, right, right, right. Um, and again, this is part of the struggle that you find at play uh, within Israel's history and why the prophets play such an important role in that history. So let me kind of back into that question, and if I don't answer it well, press me on it. Um, but Micah 6, 1 through 8, mm. like I, I, let's talk about that because I think Micah 6, 1 through 8 is, is an indication of, of where the people of God need to be, again, in relationship to God and their neighbor and the call that we have to live circumspect lives before God. Um, and I've, I've spoken on this before around the Advent, so forgive me for repeating some of this, but um, I, I, I remember um, when studying Micah 6, engaging Hannah Arendt's um, yeah. little book that she did on the Eichmann trials. Um, and here's this Jewish philosopher that's now, a, I think, a reporter in London who ends up going to the Eichmann trials to observe. And when she goes to observe the trials, as everyone would have expected, and these are her terms, I believe, I expected to find a monster 
right. but instead I found a bureaucrat. Um, and, and that's when I think Hannah Arendt coined the phrase, the banality of evil. Um, it's, it's the fact that it's not, we're not finding monsters, we're finding people who go home at night and sip a cup of wine and listen to Brahms, but they're not reflective about the nature of their actions in the given moment, given what God's law requires of mm-hmm. them. Um, and I think that's the dynamic that Micah 6, 1 through 8 is leaning into. Because if there's a bumper sticker verse that we see in the, from the Minor Prophets, it's Micah 6, 8. I'm sure right. it's on some car in Birmingham right now. He has shown you, O oh man, what the Lord requires of you. Do justice. That's that term mishpat. Love mercy. That's that Hebrew term chesed. And then and all the translations say, and walk humbly with your God. Um, what people often forget is that Micah 6, 8 is a verse that has a home in a larger tableau within the book of Micah. In the first few verses of Micah chapter 6, God is in a courtroom scene. And in the courtroom scene, and you can, uh, I should turn and look at it with you. Here, why don't I read 6 through 1 through Oh, 8, that'd be great. Then you, you just yeah. lay into it. Yeah, I'll turn it. as well. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent you before before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk mm. humbly with your God? Yeah, yeah. And, if, and you look at the way in which these verses move. This is, this is a, almost a triptych here. The first two verses, you have this courtroom scene where the Lord calls on all of creation into the divine courtroom um, to adjudicate the, or to be witnesses better to, to the case that the Lord has against his own people. And I, I, I mean, I've when, when you're called to the courtroom with God, that, that, that's a bad day. You know, ask Job. That, that's, not a, that's not a happy day. Um, and here's, here's his opening case. In verse 3, what have I done to weary you? T- tell me. And, and it's as if the Lord takes on a kind of parenting role where we ask our kids when they say things aren't fair and we want to look at them and say, tell me exactly how things aren't fair in your life. Um, and this is what God says. When, when did I wear you? Was it when I rescued you from Egypt? Was that the point where it went off kilter? Um, when I sent before you um, uh, um, spirit-endowed leaders like Moses, Arian, and Miriam? Was it when I even got to King Balak, the king of Moab, and then had God speak through Balaam and his ass, his donkey, you know, to get to, to, to protect the people of God? So he, 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 what you have here is, is the Lord telling the people, do you remember your history of redemption? Do you remember that I rescued you from Egypt and brought you all the way to the camps outside of the, outside of the land of Canaan and then brought you safely into the land flowing with milk and honey? Have you forgotten that it's I that did that for you? So he's contending with them on this level for them to remember, number one, who they are. 
I mean, I think this is a really important point that centers on this conversation. Remember who you are. You were a sinner. You were enslaved in need of redemption. And I met you. I found you. I brought you to myself when you had no ability to make a move toward me. You had none. Um, and And your whole history attests to that. So what do the people respond with? They respond with, okay, well, let me, let me do some religious stuff. Right? Well, I'll get real religious with God. And I'll, I'll offer him some burnt offerings, and I'll give him some oil, maybe even my firstborn son. So there's kind of a hyperbolic move that's moving here. Um, the, and the Lord is being a little bit sarcastic with the people, um, all the way to the offering of your firstborn son. And then here's the response. No, none of that external religious observance. This is what the Lord has already told you. This is what he's revealed. Justice, love, love is the way we could say this, and to walk humbly with your God. And Andrew, as I've, I've wrestled with this verse um, 6, 8 for a while, I actually think the way that we have to enter into it is to move backwards in that triptych of walk humbly with your God, love, love, and kindness, and then do justice. Because you're asking the question, how do we do this? What, what, what kind of people do we need to be? And I think here's a formula for us. Number one, we walk humbly with our God. Um, the way in which all translations have this is to walk humbly. But I think maybe, a, a, I hate to do this, but maybe a better translation is to walk prudently, to walk circumspectly, to walk in a thoughtful way. This is that Hannah Arendt thing about the banality of evil. I think we have to recognize, and I'm having, having to have this conversation with myself, left to ourselves on autopilot. Um, we won't think critically about ourselves and our world. We'll think about our own self-interest. Mm-hmm. How, does this, how does this bother me in my world? When can we get past this to get back to normalcy? That's the kind of language we'll use. Instead of walking reflectively, circumspectly, thoughtfully, engaging our faculties with God, asking God to speak, to reveal. And again, and I think humility is certainly a part of this because to begin in a circumspect way before God is to begin in such a way that that is, I think, the basis of any conversation that has intellectual virtue at its core. I could be wrong. I need to bring myself under critical scrutiny. And the way in which I bring myself under critical scrutiny is not to look to myself, my experience, or my own thoughts, but to give myself again to God's word revealed in Jesus. Let that be the means by which my own humble, circumspect walk with God takes place. Because when that's what's happening on the sort of basic primary level, then that leads to the raising of the affections, to love love, to love loving kindness, to love the love of God and the love of neighbor, which then naturally works itself out in acts of justice to the neighbor where we actually love our neighbor as we're called to love ourselves. You know Martin Luther's famous line, um, God does not need our good works, right. but our neighbors do. Right. Um, Eberhard Jungel, another Lutheran theologian, I think rather famously said, um, one way of defining sin is, is making ourselves our own neighbors. Um, people that are walking circumspectly with God in a reflective way about what does God have to say? How does he speak into this? Or do his words reveal to us in the person of Jesus? That's really the, the sort of biblical antidote, the medicine toward making myself my own neighbor. And for anyone who's been around the Advent, we hear it from you in the pulpit all the time, and I'm so grateful. I wish that was one and done. And I wish that was the kind of thing where we could say, I, I uh, got that. Went to camp last summer, and that whole walking humbly thing got it down, and I'm, and I'm just... 
but it's just the human reality of sin and the fact that we are sinners till the day we die require constant repentance and returning to this. Um, and I have to think that the moment that we're in right now is a call to that. It's a call to humility, to repentance, to listening, to praying, um, so that we can love, love, and love our neighbor again. Yeah. One of the things that I think that we can talk about um, is, is ourselves mm. and in the midst of all this, because as you're speaking, I, I think about white Christians mm. who are the ones who have this on their have the yes. bumper sticker. Shalom. Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. They're, they're the ones who have this bumper sticker. And, and the people who have that bumper sticker on the back of the car, by and large, are the people who tell me this is their favorite verse. When I speak with them, they really, they, they wouldn't see it as a reverse order thing, working back through the triptych, as you said. They would really sort of say, belief in God is something that's really important, but if anything's really going to get done, I'm, I'm going to have to do it. And they'll use this verse to justify it. Like, this is what I must do in order to usher in justice and, and peace. And, I mean, you see biblical character, Gideon. Um, mm. Gideon getting, or as you pointed out, Solomon getting away from God and, and sort of mindlessly uh, being unfaithful. Mm. And so how do we have a conversation with people who... Uh, who are in that place of, we have to do something. And, and you know, even the, the falsehood that the Bible speaks directly against is Jesus has no hands and feet but ours. Um, that gets dismantled. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but how do you, so how do you respond to people who, who, would, who would have it in the wrong order and say, work as if it depended on you, and pray as if it depended on God, which really means I'm not so sure God's really going to show up in this. Yeah, yeah. And what does it mean for God to show up in it? Because he could use us. Yeah, yeah and of course, you know, there's a, there's a tension that we live in on this because, um, you know, I was reading recently uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail where, you know, he said in, in a really, um, it's, it's a hard thing to hear even today you know, that his concern was more for the moderate right. white person than it was the, the Klan itself. Um, the people who sort of feel about, you know, something deeply about the cause, but just kind of sit on the sidelines and do nothing. Um, I, I don't think there's an easy answer, frankly, to sort through, through the way in which you, that there are, there are, there are uh, rocks to crash on on each side here. But I think at the core of, of this discussion for a Christian is we have to pray and ask God that we think Christianly about this. Um, it can't be sub-Christian, and that means we have to begin with the gospel. We have to begin with God's reconciling activity in our own lives and the fact that we've been liberated from sin, recognizing that that is the foundation from which true liberation and, and works of justice will be propelled, but it, it requires the fuel of the gospel to really be able to love one's neighbor. Um, other, otherwise, things become, I think, a mess in our own hands. Um, and so this, I think, again, I have to be careful here because there, there's time to think and to pray and to hurt. Um, but in doing so, I think collectively as a church, we have to look to Jesus and pray for Jesus to be there. I was, I was mentioning to you before we came in here, I've, 
been listening to this, this Dolly Parton song. I don't know why I've been listening to this new. I, you, you gotta, I'm, I'm a big fan. I've been listening to this new Dolly Parton song that she, this duet she sang with Zach Williams. I don't even know how I stumbled on it with Alexa, but, but it's, the title is There Was Jesus. And you just have that sort of refrain going through again and again. And one of the lines in that song is, and even when we didn't know you were there, there you were, that that's what we have to hope. We have to hope that Jesus will show up and that the church will be the church, that we'll witness to something other. I mean, that's the character of the church's calling in the world is to be an alternative culture within the culture at large. We think differently about how we live and how we die. We think differently about our values. We think differently about how we engage people who are different than us. When it comes to the level of policy, I mean, honestly, I feel paralyzed by that. that, That's way beyond my pay grade. But on the kind of local level itself, with how we relate to our neighbor and how we engage the other in relationship to how God has engaged us as a sinner, um, there's just a lot that can be done in our backyards, I think. Yeah. Uh, You know, in some ways, the American South is like the nation of Israel, Hmm. not the current political state, but the biblical nation, and in that it's pretty monolithic in that everybody is assumed to be a Jewish believer Mm. in the same way that in Birmingham, everybody's assumed to be a Mm. Christian believer, Mm. which actually makes it very difficult to have the core reason for your fellowship be faith Mm. because you are able, when it's so widespread, you're able to sort of put more credence in secondary and tertiary familiarity, than, than the primary thing of faith. And so the way that I see it manifested in Birmingham is you're much more likely to get along with your neighbor who says they're a Christian, whether they are or not, that's neither here nor there. But really why you get along with them so well is you both have lake houses, you both yeah. root for the same football right. team, right. you both have kids the same age. But as Christians, we actually have more in common and ought to have a deeper relationship with someone who may not be from our cultural demographic, but as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we, who allow ourselves to get sucked into that, mm. like, I mean, I'm convicted, like, and when I'm around my African brothers and sisters uh, or non-white Christian brothers and sisters, I feel that commonality and I feel that strong bond and I feel that intimacy but then we just kind of fade back into our own parallel universes mm. that actually aren't defined by faith in the way they ought to be. Like, yeah. you're, at a, you're at a place that's really, as far as American theological colleges go, is a diverse place. Yeah, um, yeah and we and have our own struggles with those dynamics as well. Um, yeah, I think these, there are sociological factors at play that are the natural outflow of certain cultural factors that the truth of God's word revealed in the gospel and Jesus are going to necessarily challenge. Mm-hmm. Who is my real brother and sister? Um, and that, that is, you know, and we tend to think of those in familial and sociological terms. Um, and the Bible wants us to think about those in terms of who's in Christ. Right. That's, that's the person that, I'm, that I relate to. And, and that also means that in this moment now, as we pray about this in humility and in contrition and repentance, um, that God gives us the ears to be able to hear and to listen and to engage 
our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, not pretend that we can speak their story. Right. Um, it's, not our, it's not my story, um, but to listen and to jointly turn our affections again to Jesus in hope because, again, the character of God in the Bible is that he takes situations that seem like they are dead, um, Jesus in a tomb, Israel in Egypt, and he makes them alive again out of the midst of the suffering. I, I mean, think, the only real sermon we have of Jesus other than the Sermon on the Mount, but a sermon in the synagogue where he's there with, you know, the parishioners, is Isaiah 61. I've come to preach release to the captives, liberation, and which primarily has to do with our sin, but also has to do with the way in which sin has impacted the cultural order as well. And um, I think that's a, you know, that's a really important point. I, I wanted to, I, I don't know if I'm hijacking this here. No, no. Um, Andrew, but Habakkuk is a book in the Minor Prophets as well that if there's a book that I think is pertinent for our moment, this is one. Um, and it's almost as if Habakkuk can do its own work without even being commented on. It's like, just read it and step away. Um, but in our moment, with all of its complexity, listen to these verses, uh, Habakkuk 1, 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do, you see, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And, and listen to the way in which he describes why this is happening. Because the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. And this was the problem of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, which has a lot to do, frankly... Um, with, with power and the role that power plays in people's lives. Um, those who became the kind of elite of Israel's religious and political life uh, used their power to oppress those that were under them for their, own, um, for their own stability and advance, the building of Jeroboam's palace, um, Naboth's vineyard with King Ahab. I mean, this is a constant thing where you see those in, in positions of privilege who are oppressing those underneath them so that they can have, you know, continue their, their status. And Habakkuk here is saying, I see it all the time, and God, I feel like you're the one who's making me see it. Well, why do I have to see this? When, when will you save? And so Habakkuk goes all through this. I mean, this, again, I encourage th- those who are watching and us to read Habakkuk together. Um, but I love the way that Habakkuk ends. And this is how the whole book ends. Though the fig tree should not blossom, verse 17, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on high places. One of the beautiful things about the prophets, especially the minor prophets, and the way in which they portray the future, think of of this in terms of the new heavens and the new earth, is an ordered society, a just society, where, and this is the way Isaiah and Micah talk about it, where people don't fear anymore. They don't remember, I mean, it gives me chills to think about it. They don't remember what it's like to fear. What's that feeling like? And I know that I don't necessarily live in a way that I'm driven by fear in my circumstances, but I know that there are many who are. And the hope that the prophets point us to in the future is when God's kingdom finally touches this world in its consummation, 
It will be a kingdom that's marked by a lack of fear so that we can relate to God and our neighbor the way that it's intended to be. This does not call us to a paralysis of action now, but it calls us ultimately to a kind of Maranatha position. Jesus, please come now. It's disordered. It's very hard to even see a way through this that it can be ordered again. Please come, bring your kingdom so that heaven will meet earth and humanity can live like it's intended to live. I think when I was a kid, I hoped that heaven... In heaven, I'd become God, like God, and just know everything. And and I think what the Bible points us to is to be in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, is to become fully human. Mm -hmm. What it really means to be human and relating to God for eternity and to our neighbor. Um, So that we can sit, as Micah 4 says in Isaiah 2, so that we can sit under our own vine and drink some wine, enjoy some figs, um, plant our own gardens, and not remember what it's like to see violence in the streets anymore. Mm -hmm. That, that's the prayer that I think we all have um, for all societies and for all people. Um, and it will only take place with the kingdom of God and Jesus coming now and ultimately in the future. Amen. Well, Mark, I think this is a great introduction into hopefully mm. uh, the conversations that we're going to have moving forward. Um, and I don't want people to think, well, that wasn't practical at all, because I think you really helped us yeah. to understand yeah. um, the cry of God's heart and, um, and his perspective on these and that God uh, would give us the grace that our perspective would be in sync with his. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would have mercy on our land. Lord, change our hearts. Lord, help us to be and make us into the people that you're calling us to be. Lord, help us to fix uh, our trust and our hope uh, upon you not in the structures, not in uh, individuals, uh, not in uh, goodwill, uh, but, Lord, understanding that ultimately uh, our hope uh, for rescue and salvation is in you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.